we get a warm, empowering feeling. The word is connected with refreshment, renewal, intimacy. But for others, the word, you say the word prayer and you think, oh boy, that's not one of my strong points. I have a hard time praying. I feel guilty because I'm not a good prayer. My prayers seem to diffuse into the atmosphere before they reach the ears of God. Well, whether you uh, are on one extreme or the other or somewhere in the middle, this series on prayer should be very helpful to all of us, no matter where we are in that spectrum. In the first section of this prayer series, we'll be looking at the major movements in the Lord's Prayer. And this morning, we're going to focus on those two phrases, Our Father in Heaven, hallowed be your name. And it's really a, a very fitting way to start a prayer series because the, the Lord's Prayer um, arises out of uh, a request from the disciples. In Matthew and in, and, and in Luke both, there, it's recorded that the disciples come to Jesus and say, teach me how to pray. And Jesus says, okay, when you pray, pray like this. And then he goes on, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And uh, so this morning we're going to look at those two phrases. And, and we'll be using Psalm 33 to do that. But we'll also be using uh, question and answers 120 through 122 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And, and the Heidelberg does a, an amazing job with the Lord's Prayer. I think you'll, uh, uh, you'll be refreshed by how the Catechism sets up. The, uh, the sermon for this morning. So let's look together at question and answer 120 through 122. Why did Christ command us to call God our Father? At the very beginning of prayer, Christ wants to kindle in us what is basic to our prayer, the childlike awe and trust that God through Christ has become our Father. Our fathers do not refuse us the things of this life. God our Father will even less refuse to give us what we ask in faith. Question 121. Why the words in heaven? These words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty as something earthly and to expect everything for, and to expect everything for body and soul from His almighty power. What does the first request mean? Hell be your name means help us to really know you, to bless, worship, and praise you for all your works and for all that shines forth from them. Your almighty power, wisdom, kindness, justice, mercy, and truth. And it means help us to direct all our living, what we think, say, and do, so that your name will never be blasphemed because of us, but always be honored and praised. The Catechism does a wonderful job setting this up. In fact, you know, it's such a good job that I thought, man, I could... I could really just sit back down. We can call the worship team up. Our Father in heaven, they, they, that questions 120 through 122 really bring out those two elements. There's that parental, loving nature of God. And then there's that holy, divine otherness characteristic of God. And you, we could easily do these in two weeks. But the cool thing about them when you do them together is that together they form a, a really unique uh, they, they express a unique nature of God that on one hand when we see the awesomeness the holiness the splendor of God we're to drop to our knees in awe but on the other hand we get helped right up in a loving embrace by a holy heavenly father 
those two key components, the parental love and the holiness of God, is seen very well in Psalm 33. Let's look at that psalm together. We're just going to look at excerpts, uh, starting with verse 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. Try to picture that. God breathed out the universe. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. This is the holiness of God. Let's look at the, the fatherliness of God. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth. And he forms the hearts of all who considers everything they do. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver him from death, keep him alive in famine. We wait and hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice. For we trust in his name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. This is God's word. Let's ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we look at prayer, I know that some people are hoping maybe this time I could, I could figure it out. Lord, no matter where we're at, Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would lead us deeper into a relationship with you so we can express our thoughts, our emotions, our feelings to you and be led, guided, and directed by you through your word and Holy Spirit. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you pick up when we were reading this? This psalm contains those two elements, the, um, but in reverse order. The Our Father in Heaven is um, the loving parent idea comes at the end of Psalm 33, and, but the, and the beginning contains the Hallowed Be Your Name part. So I want to start with, with the Hallowed Be Your Name part. Why, making, uh, why is making God's name hallowed or holy important? Well, God is holy, and to say that his name is holy is just meaning that you're revering, respecting God. And if you look through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, whenever anyone encounters God or an angel of the Lord or God's presence in any form, their initial reaction is fear. It's not just, oh, I have a healthy respect for God. No, most of the time they drop down on their knees or on their face in fear and trembling. Whether it's Mary, whether it's the shepherds, whether it's um, Moses in front of the burning bush, throughout the Bible, when people encounter God, they experience the fear of God because God is holy. He is other. He is completely perfect and all-powerful. Psalm 33 brings us out love. In, in a wonderful way. Look at verse 6 again with me. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, the starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. God is the creator of the universe. Verse 6 tells us he breathed creation into existence, spoken into existence, and the galaxies, the universe was formed. I heard a great illustration about three years ago by a speaker by the name of Louis Giglio, and he uses this a golf ball illustration that I want to use for you this morning. Has anybody ever heard the golf ball illustration before? 
All right, you're in for a treat, okay? This is to help us wrap our, our, our minds around the God of the universe. And to help set this up, uh, one of you guys sent me this email about a year ago, and I saved it. And see, I, I do read your emails, and, um, and, and uh, I'm going to guide us through um, a few pictures. This is just to help you understand how, how big the Earth is. See, Jupiter is the biggest planet, and then if you drop down three planets, you'll see uh, planet Earth on the far bottom left. Okay? Now, here's the sun. And if you see Jupiter's in the far bottom left, and then you scroll over five planets, you can't really see. It's a little speck. There's the Earth. Now, the Earth uh, is 96 million miles away from the sun. It's the closest star, sorry, 93 miles away, and it, but it only takes eight minutes for light to travel that way. Does anybody know how fast light travels? Dave. Awesome. 186,000 miles a second is how fast light travels. So a light year is 5.88 trillion miles, okay? A light year is 5.88 trillion miles. This is helpful later on. Okay, if Earth is the size of a golf ball, okay, picture planet Earth the size of a, uh, of a golf ball, the sun would be 15 feet in diameter as compared to this golf ball, okay? So if I would put it here, that screen is probably 12 feet, add another 3 feet, that's how big the sun is. That's enough golf balls to fill an entire school bus, That's the closest star. I want to just look at a couple more stars. This is um, Betelgeuse. This as seen from the Hubble telescope. The Hubble telescope's floating around the atmosphere about 360 uh, miles above Earth. Okay? Here's, a, here's a, uh, an artist's rendition of Betelgeuse. And uh, Betelgeuse is 427 light years away. Okay? That's 427 times 5.88 trillion miles away. And uh, its diameter, okay, its width is twice the size of the Earth's orbit around the sun. Now, that's a huge, huge star. If Earth was the size of a golf ball, then Betelgeuse would be the equivalent to not one Empire State Buildings, but six Empire State Buildings stacked on top of each other. So here's the Earth. Here's Elmhurst, this little dimple right here, okay? Place, let's all take a mental trip to New York City, head to the Empire State Building, stick this golf ball down at the, uh, the doorway, scroll back and look up, and then add five more Empire State Buildings on top of that Empire State Building, and you have the size of the star Betelgeuse. 262 trillion Earths can fit inside this star. That's enough golf balls to fill soldiers' Soldier Field, 3,000 times. God spoke these stars into existence. He breathed the heavens and the universe. I don't know you, about you, but when I pray, sometimes I find myself advising the creator of the universe. <laughs> suggesting things to God, counseling God, telling him, well, maybe you should do this. Or sometimes, in my worst days, I even correct God. God, this is wrong. This shouldn't have happened. 
In prayer, we've got to remember who God is. Hallowed be your name. Let's look really quick at two more stars. This little orange dot looks very, very small, but it's, it's a Musephi, and it's 3,000 light years away. And if Earth was the size of a golf ball, there's an artist's rendition of Musephi. It's a really a red planet. If Earth was the size of a golf ball, Musephi would be the equivalent of two Golden Gate bridges standing side by side. So take a mental trip to California, stand on one side of the bridge, place this golf ball, and remember there's Elmhurst right here, and, um, and then scroll back far enough to see the Golden Gate Bridge and then an imaginary Golden Great Gate Bridge. That's how big this planet is. 2.7 quadrillion Earths could fit in Musefi. Last one, and this is my favorite one. This is an amazing star. That little blue star in the middle is called, I'm laughing because of this Latin name, Canis Majoris. Canis Majoris. Canis means dog. Majoris means big. This is the big dog. This is the biggest star found so far. If Earth was the size of a golf ball, its equivalent, Canis Majoris would be Oh, there's, a, there's an actual picture from the Hubble telescope. It looks like a tissue. But um, Earth would be Mount Everest, which reaches six miles above sea level. So go to Nepal, stick this golf ball at the base of the mountain, and scroll back. Seven quadrillion Earths can fit inside Canis Majoris. That's enough golf balls to cover the entire state of Illinois in eight and a half feet deep of golf balls. God created these immense objects just by saying the word. We serve an incredibly awesome, all-powerful, star-speaking, universe-breathing God. Jesus says, hey, if you want to learn how to pray you got to keep this in mind. You're coming before the creator of the universe, and holy is his name. One more picture. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to put this golf ball down before it bounces down the podium here. Um, Psalm 33 continues to paint a, a, a deeper picture of Jesus' words, Our Father in heaven. And if you look at verses 13 through 15 again, it says, From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth. He forms the hearts of all who considers everything they do. In another place in the Psalms, Psalm 139, I think, it says that God knits us in our mother's womb. I have one more picture, and this is it's kind of a gross picture, but I'm going to show it to you anyways. What is that? It looks like something found at the bottom of my car. Uh, it, is, it is actually you and I. It, it is an embryo at about a, hundred, uh, a couple hundred cells. And I'm showing you this just to... Um, I'm going to take this off so we don't stare at that too long. Um, at that stage, at about a hundred cells, when the, when the embryo attaches to the lining of the uterine wall... The cell does some, those cells do something amazing. There's a hundred cells. They look identical. They have the same components in them. And, but at that stage, they start specializing. 
almost like college kids choosing which career path to go in. One becomes a brain, uh, the, the, the beginnings of a brain. One becomes the beginnings of uh, an eye. One becomes the beginning of, of um, a foot. And one becomes the beginnings of a heart. And scientists have no idea what tells these cells to become what they become. It's a complete mystery. It's a complete mystery to everyone but the God of the Bible. God says, I knit you in my mother's womb. Psalm 33 says, I form your heart. The psalmist is reminding us here that the maker of heaven and earth is also the maker of each one of us who watches over us all the time. Jesus wants us to start off with these two notions. God is not just our almighty creator and holy, but he's also a heavenly father. Like our earthly fathers, but so much more intimate and empowering. For some of us, the Lord's Prayer is tough just because of that beginning, our Father who art in heaven. Maybe we had an absent father, or worse yet, an abusive father. And the last thing we want to picture is an almighty, all-powerful Father in heaven. Well, if you're in that situation, I want you to get that earthly father picture right out of your head. God is a perfect heavenly father. He never ignores mistreats or abandons. Here's an illustration that might help. There are two kids in an um, identical set of life circumstances, except they have two vastly different fathers. Each father asks his son to mow the lawn on this particular Saturday morning. Son number one's dad comes into this, his son's room, turns the light on, rolls up the shades, and says, hey, it's time to get out of bed. It's nine o'clock, you lazy bum. I'm going out golfing, and when I come back, I expect you to have the grass finished. Here's son number two. Son number two's dad pops in at the same time on that same Saturday morning, turns on the lights, and says, rise and shine, sleeping beauty. It's time for the master landscaper to do another masterpiece. And he raises up the shades in the bedroom and says, look, the sun is beckoning you out into nature, wanting you to do another masterpiece. I'm heading out golfing with the guys, and I'm going to try to focus, but I know I'm going to have my worst score possible because I'll be so excited about seeing your handiwork. How does son number one and son number two feel? How does son number one feel when he gets out of bed and grabs some juice before going out to cut the grass? Well, the lawnmowers are out, and son number one is thinking positive. He's rising up to meet his dad's challenge, his dad's demand, and he's going to do a perfect job, and his dad's going to be proud. And he works hard, going up and down, creating straight, tight, even lines. He puts everything away, sweeps up the grass trimmings from the driveway and the sidewalk, heads into the kitchen, grabs a drink, and waits for his father's return. Son number two is cutting the grass with his flip-flops on. He's got his hat on and his shades. He's got a, a, a water bottle attached to his belt. And he's kind of sauntering as he cuts the grass. 
carefree but steady. He's doing a good job, but he's loving it. When he finishes, although he decided to do something different this morning, he decided to cut the grass diagonally instead of his normal side to side. When he finishes, he puts away the lawnmower, gets out the lawn chair, refills his lemonade, cranks his iPod, and waits out sort of in a Vanna White pose on the lawn chair, waiting for his dad to pull up. Back to dad number one. Dad number one pulls into the driveway, parks his car, puts his golf clubs away, and goes into the house. He walks into his kitchen, acknowledges his son by a quick nod, grabs a drink out of the refrigerator, goes and sits down at the TV without saying a word. Dad number two, as he's approaching home, sees his son in the lawn chair doing the Vanna White and pulls diagonally into the driveway, doesn't even pull in all the way, parks the car but leaves it running, hops out, and just starts walking around like this, you know, as if he's looking um, at the Sistine Chapel for the first time. I don't know what your experience was with your father. Maybe it was incredible. Maybe you had a great dad. Maybe it was awful. Maybe your dad was abusive. Maybe your dad was an alcoholic all your life. No matter if you had dad number one or dad number two or anywhere in between, the Heavenly Father is a perfect Heavenly Father, a loving Heavenly Father. Psalm 33 talks of his unfailing love. 18 through 22, but the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those who hope in his unfailing love. We wait and hope for the Lord. He is our help. He is our shield. Our hearts rejoice. For we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Remember how we talked about whenever God or an angel of God appears to humans in the Bible, the response is always the same. They're terrified. They're afraid. But always the next response from God is two words. Do you know what they are? Fear not. Don't be afraid. God is awesome. His name is holy. He is completely other but he is also our creator, our loving, heavenly father. Jesus is saying, when you head into prayer, pray like this. Keep in mind these two facts, that we serve an almighty, all-powerful God who breathed the universe into being. Stars so big we can't even wrap our minds around it. But we also serve a loving, perfect, heavenly father who cares for us. Romans 5, 5 through 8, says this about our Father's love. Our hope doesn't disappoint us because God poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still rebelling against him, Christ died for us. It's a wonderful tension. The God of the universe and our loving, perfect, heavenly Father. That is who we come to every time we bow our heads or lift up our eyes or just think a prayer in our thoughts.
Let's remember this as we head into prayer in the, in the times to come.